If you've been with us, you know that we've been going through, verse by verse, the Gospel of John. And this is our third week in John chapter 15. And at this point in the story, Judas has already left to go and betray Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus is now teaching the remaining 11 disciples. And he told them a spiritual secret in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, if you want to look at the screen with me. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We talked about how the fruit that Jesus is looking for in our hearts, in our lives, is for us to be more Christ-like. But we cannot become more Christ-like in our own strength. We can only bear fruit by abiding in Jesus, strengthening our relationship with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will produce that fruit in our lives. Then last week, we heard Jesus tell the disciples in verses 12 and 13, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So Jesus commands us to love one another, but not as the world loves. We are to love each other as Jesus loves us, and his love is perfected in sacrifice. The New Living Translation says, verse 13, this way. It says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That means that there's no better demonstration of God's love. In other words, there's nothing else God can do to better display His love than what He has already done. If God heals your body of some sickness, or if He heals some broken relationship in your life, it doesn't mean that He loves you more. If God blesses you with the perfect job or a bunch of money, it doesn't mean that He loves you more. On the other hand, if God allows you to go through suffering or to experience loss, it doesn't mean that He loves you less. Your first fill in the blank today. The only true judge of God's love is the cross, not my current circumstances. That's the only true judge of how much God loves us. And Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. And so Jesus is telling us he's already done the most amazing thing to show you how much he loves you. He can't add to that. He can't make it any better than he already has. Now we pick up in John chapter 15. In verses 18 through 27, we read how Christians are treated like Christ. Jesus is still teaching to his 11 disciples here. And he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, two of the biggest issues the world has with Jesus are his judgment and his exclusivity. His judgment and his exclusivity. The world is fine with Jesus' love and his compassion. They like that kind of Jesus. They really like baby Jesus in the manger because he can't even talk yet. And yet, the moment Jesus says in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The world doesn't like that kind of Jesus. You see, the gospel message, which is supposed to be good news, is suddenly relabeled as offensive and intolerant. We read in John chapter 3, 
verses 19 through 20, where it says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. In other words, many would say, well, the light, who is Jesus, the light's fine. Just keep the light out of my life. Don't shine the light on me and what I'm doing. Because when the light shines on their darkness, the natural response is to hide. I don't, I don't want to be exposed. I don't want you to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. I just want you to tell me that you love me. And I'll tell you I love you too. And then we'd never see each other again. That's what I really want. So that I don't have to change my life. So Jesus tells the disciples they will be hated by the world because they represent that there is a right and wrong way to live. And they represent that there is only one way to go to heaven. Only one way to please God. Jesus continues in verse 20 of John 15. He says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So he's just saying, when we become a disciple of Jesus, we should expect the world to treat us like the world treated him. Verse 21, but, Jesus says, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. You may recall the story in Acts where the apostles were arrested for teaching about Jesus. You know, all the chief priests who got the crowds together and got Jesus to be crucified, they thought, whew, okay, we're done. And yet, all of a sudden, all these disciples are in the temple area teaching about Jesus. So they arrested him, they beat him up. We read in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. It says, And they, the religious leaders, agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So the apostles, they were beaten up, they were threatened, and then released, and they're rejoicing. They say, man, we're so lucky that we got to suffer in Jesus' name. We're so honored and privileged that I got to get punched in the face for Jesus. I mean, You realize how odd that is, right? And it's because it's just a testimony that the disciples had been abiding in Jesus. This is a fruit that the Holy Spirit had produced in their lives where they were joyful in the midst of suffering because they were seeking Jesus and he gave them that joy. Now back to our text in John 15, verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, then they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. You see, Jesus, he's like the line in the sand, right? You're either for him or you're against him. You're on one side or the other. Those who believe in Jesus, they have the father as well. But those who reject Jesus, Jesus says they don't have the Father. They don't love God. Many people claim to love God, but Jesus says if you reject Him, then your love for God is false. 
It's not true. It's not real. Verse 25, Jesus continues, But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. You see, because Jesus was sinless, they had no reason to hate him other than their own sinful hearts. And Jesus says, This just fulfills more prophecy about me, the Messiah. Verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit. Part of the Trinity. He is God. He's a He, not an It. The Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, He, the Holy Spirit, will testify of Jesus. You see, when spiritual gifts are being used properly, the focus is not on the gifts. The focus is not on the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit works, the focus is always on Jesus. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. He always points to Jesus. The Holy Spirit always reflects Jesus, not Himself. Now, continuing in John chapter 16, in verses 1 through 6, we read that persecution is coming. Verse 1, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. So let's, let's pause right there. Jesus says, I'm, I'm telling you these things for a reason, right? So what are the things that he's told them? Well, he told the disciples that he was leaving them. He told the disciples that the world will hate them just like they hated Jesus. And Jesus told them that he would send the Holy Spirit, that they would not be left alone, that the Holy Spirit would remain with them testifying of Jesus. And he says, I'm telling you these things so that you will not be made to stumble. Verse 2, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. The Jewish leaders quickly began to excommunicate the disciples and apostles after the resurrection of Jesus. But even before Jesus gives this warning, we already read a story about the blind man. He was born blind, and Jesus healed him. And it was on the Sabbath. And boy, the Pharisees and chief priests, they hated that. They didn't like that. And so they told him, well, who made, you, who made you well? Who is it that made mud on the Sabbath? How dare they make anything on the Sabbath? And then heal your eyes. And he said, well, it was Jesus. And they said, no, stop. Don't tell people it was Jesus or we're going to kick you. You're gonna, okay, we're kicking you out. You're done. We're through. And they kicked him out of the church. Because he was testifying of Jesus. And Jesus says, that's just a a glimmer of what's to come. They're going to kick you out of the synagogues because you're testifying of me. And not only that, there will be those who will kill you thinking that they're serving God in doing so. We read about that in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and served the Lord. And as he testified of Jesus, the Jews who were gathered there They believed that Stephen was blaspheming, telling lies about God. And so they stoned him and put him to death. And they stood there and they believed that they were serving God by getting rid of this blasphemer. Then later in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we read about Saul. It says, Then Saul, 
who was not yet called Paul, this will be the Apostle Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, or any who were Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Put put yourself in, in Saul's shoes here. He believed that he was called by God to be a secret agent for God, to, to sneak around and, and discover these Christians who were following after Jesus and arrest them and put them into prison and ultimately execute them. He believed he was serving God by doing so. And Jesus says, continuing in John 16, verse 3, He says, And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I think it's a common misconception that becoming a Christian makes life easier, happier, and more blessed. Jesus, however, teaches that the Christian life is difficult and suffers both persecution and the hatred of the world. We read in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, your next fill in the blank. We don't follow Jesus for life to be easier, but for life to be eternal. We don't follow Jesus for this temporary life to become easier and happier. We follow Him for eternal life because Jesus rescues us from our sin and from eternity in hell. Which is why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, an awesome passage here. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal." You see, we're called to live for the eternal, the everlasting. But if we get confused and we think, Lord, I don't understand. I'm trying to serve you and seek you, but this part of my life isn't going the way I thought it would. Or I I thought you would answer my prayers as I ask you for these things, and he's not answering them in the way that we thought. We can begin to get frustrated, even angry with God, because we're expecting him to do something he never promised he would. Jesus promised us eternal life. That's the hope that we need to cling to. We should still pray and ask for things. But our hope is in the eternal life, not in this life. Now in verses 7 through 15, we read the Holy Spirit in the world. Jesus says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him 
to you. This is an important point that I don't want us to miss. Jesus has spent the last three years with the disciples. For those three years, he led them to each town where they were supposed to go. For those three years, he taught the disciples privately and he taught the crowds publicly. For those three years, Jesus performed many miracles, both in private and in public. For those many years, whenever there was a stir and the crowds wanted to stone Jesus, Jesus was right there to do some ninja moves and get out of there and they were okay. Or Jesus was right there to confound the crowds with his questions. And now Jesus says, I'm leaving you. And it's better that I leave you. And if you're a disciple, you're thinking, no, I don't think so. You see, when I'm hungry, I want you to take one bagel and feed all of us. Okay? When I'm scared, I want you to just calm the storm and then let me go to sleep on the pillow in the boat like you were. That's the kind of Jesus that I want. And yet Jesus says it's better for him to leave so the Holy Spirit can be here. And that truth is the same for us. Jesus declares it is better to have the Holy Spirit in our hearts than to have Jesus with us on the earth. If we fail to understand that the Holy Spirit in us is better than Jesus with us, then we fail to understand how great a gift the Holy Spirit is. You see, if Jesus is physically here on earth with us, then we have to share Him, right? But if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we don't have to share. The Holy Spirit's in each of us giving us the strength that we need, giving us that relationship with Him. And so again, Jesus tells the disciples that it's to their advantage that He go away, and He will send for the Holy Spirit. Then picking up in verse 8, Jesus says, And when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in Me, of righteousness because I go to My Father, and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So three ways the Holy Spirit will convict the world. Let's look at each of these together. Verse 9 again, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in me, Jesus says. You see, because Jesus is the only way to heaven, people are either saved or condemned based on receiving or rejecting Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world of not believing in Jesus. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus, right? And so, if somebody rejects Jesus, they're rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. Look at Luke 12, verse 10. It says, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Choosing not to believe in Jesus is to commit the unforgivable sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You're saying that testimony the Holy Spirit's giving you of conviction, you're saying, that's not God. That's blasphemy. It's the unforgivable sin. But thankfully, there's an easy remedy. If you're committing the unforgivable sin, if you're not believing in Jesus, you simply believe in Him. You receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You see, the unforgivable sin is not something you're like, gosh, I don't know if I did that when I was nine and really angry at life. No, it's not something it's one and done. 
It's an ongoing decision to reject Jesus. That is the unforgivable sin. But the moment any of us puts our faith in Jesus, we say, Lord, I'm guilty. Lord, I deserve punishment. But you've paid for me on the cross, paid for my sins in full. And I'm trusting that I'm going to get to heaven, not because I'm worthy, but because you're worthy, Lord, because of your work on my behalf. The moment somebody believes in Jesus, they're no longer committing the unforgivable sin. You see, that's the strength and power of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. In a sense, he took all of the sin of the world upon himself and he paid for it in full. So the only sin that's left, that's not paid for, is the sin of somebody saying, yeah, thanks but no thanks, Jesus. I, I don't want to receive your forgiveness. And that's because Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone, but he invites us to believe. And so that's the first way the Holy Spirit convicts the world, is convicts the world of sin. Verse 10, the Holy Spirit also convicts the world of righteousness. Because, Jesus says, I go to my Father, and you see me no more. The fact that Jesus resurrected, he came back to life, and then he ascends up into heaven, that is proof of Jesus' righteousness. Proof that Jesus was perfect and sinless and that his works were acceptable by God the Father. You see, heaven is like a roller coaster where you've got to be this tall or this righteous to enter, right? The sad part is we all fall short, literally, right? We don't measure up. We're all falling short of God's righteous standard. Jesus is the only one righteous enough to enter, and having met the requirements, Jesus provides another way into heaven through him. Jesus says, you have to be this righteous to enter heaven. And you've all failed. That's why I came and lived that righteous life on your behalf. And then I died on the cross on your behalf. So that now you come through me, the door. Jesus says in John 10:9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus offers us another way into heaven. If you're perfect, you've never sinned, great. You can get there on your own. It's not true. You're not perfect. You can't make it, right? We've all sinned. So the third way the Holy Spirit convicts the world is of judgment. Verse 11. Because the ruler of this world is judged. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan, right? We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Satan has already been defeated on the cross and his defeat is just a foreshadowing of the coming judgment for all those who continue to reject Jesus. Now Jesus continues teaching his disciples. John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. 
Let's think about this for a moment. Earlier, in John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance the things that he had said to the disciples. And, and from that, we get the Gospels, right? The Holy Spirit bringing to remembrance the things that Jesus said to them. Now here, in these verses, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will guide them in all truth, from which we get the epistles, the letters in the New Testament. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit would tell the disciples of things to come, from which we get the book of Revelation. Jesus continues in verse 14. Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit guides us in all truth. He glorifies Jesus. He takes from Jesus and declares it to us. The message and leading of the Holy Spirit will always line up with God's Word, with Scripture. Your next fill in the blank. The Holy Spirit's leading never contradicts the Word. The Holy Spirit will never lead or guide or speak in a way that contradicts the written Word of God. I have two friends. Each of them believed they had a dream from God. And at the time, neither of them were Christians. The first friend in his dream, he saw two doors. There was the door to heaven and the door to hell. And he looked at the door to hell and there were all of his party friends. All these beautiful girls. And they're, they're all calling out to him to join them. He woke up from that dream terrified realizing that he was headed for hell apart from Jesus. And so he gave his life to Christ and said, Lord, I don't want to live this life without you. I don't want to live eternity without you. And he gave his life to Jesus. My second friend, he had a dream. In his dream, God was looking over his life, seeing all the things that my friend was doing, the sin that he was living in, the choices he was making, the life he was living apart from God. And he said he heard God's voice. And God said, you're all right. And so I shared the gospel with my friend, the good news of what Jesus had done for him. And he says, well, that's great, but God told me in a dream that I'm good that my sin's not a big deal, that I'm not really unworthy to go to heaven. So I don't need the gospel. Obviously, one of these dreams lines up with God's word. One of them does not. The trouble is when somebody has a spiritual experience and they say, well, it has to be from the Lord. And well, not necessarily. It says that Satan parades himself like an angel of light. Satan wants to deceive, and he will do that by putting on some, some deceiving outfits. Right? He likes to trick us. And so just because something is spiritual doesn't mean that it's of the Lord. And whenever we have an experience like that, we need to test it with the Word of God. Only the Word of God tells us what is true and what is not. Picking up in verses 16 through 33. This new section is about how to suffer as Christians. Jesus says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. 
So once again, Jesus reminds the disciples, guys, I'm leaving soon. I'm going to leave you. If we're counting, I think it's more times than fingers that he's told them he's leaving. And yet look at verse 17. It says, then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. The disciples were confused. And this leads us to our next fill in the blank. In suffering, we need to remember that our knowledge is limited, but his is not. I look at this passage where the disciples are still confused. They still don't understand, and I'm comforted because I fit in right there with them. And especially in times of suffering, I get really confused because I say, Lord, I I don't quite understand what you're doing. I don't quite understand where we're headed here. But that's okay because our knowledge is limited, but God's knowledge is not. Oftentimes in suffering, we want to ask God questions. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, getting the answers to those questions, it doesn't make the suffering any better. We want to know. We want to ask. We want to scream the questions sometimes. And yet, getting the answers, it doesn't really fix the fact that it hurts. Jesus knows all, and we don't. And that's okay. Jesus says in verse 19, Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, And he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. You see, with Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, the unbelieving world would rejoice because they believed, okay, we got rid of one more blasphemer. But the disciples will be full of sorrow. And yet Jesus says, that sorrow that you have, it will soon be turned to joy. Your next point, in suffering, we need to remember that our sorrow is temporary. Our sorrow is temporary. Jesus does not tell the disciples not to weep. He simply tells them that joy is coming and that the joy that they will have, it will not be taken from them. It will replace their sorrow. Verse 21, Jesus says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. You see, it was the resurrection that turned their sorrow into joy. In one moment, they were suffering and fearful and confused, and the next moment, Jesus appears in the room with them, and He says, Peace to you! And after they're done freaking out, they realize Jesus is alive. And their sorrow was turned to joy in a moment. You see, as Christians, our joy cannot be taken from us as long as we focus on Jesus and His victory. Your next fill in the blank, we need to remember the tomb is still empty. 
Because the tomb is still empty, Jesus is still alive. And that empty tomb reminds us of God's power. It reminds us of His salvation. And it reminds us of the promise of eternal life in Him. Jesus continues in verse 23. He says, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask in the, ask the Father in my name, He will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus tells the disciples then, and He tells us today, remember to pray. Remember to pray. Not, not so like mind-blowing or earth-shattering, right? And yet, if you're anything like me, I need this reminder. Remember to pray, especially in times of suffering. Remember to pray. You see, prayer is where we need to go to share our fears, to admit our doubts, to vent our frustrations, and to find our strength to endure. You read through some of the Psalms that David wrote, and you realize, boy, this guy's just venting to the Lord. Praise the Lord. David knew where to go with his frustrations. Notice that we pray directly to the Father and we pray in Jesus' name. We don't pray to other people and we don't pray to saints or angels. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. I'm so thrilled that you don't have to come to me so that I can pass it on to Jesus. I don't want that job, okay? Now, I will pray for you, but not because I have better access, right? The foot of the cross, we're all on level ground, right? Nobody's better than each other. Nobody has better access because Jesus is the one that gives us access to the Father. And so we all pray to God the Father based on Jesus' work for us. Verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. You see, we should not get the idea that when we pray to God the Father, He's still angry at us for our sin and we're not worthy, and then Jesus, God the Son, goes to the Father and says, it's okay, just this one time, you know, answer their prayers. It's okay, it's on my name. That's not the idea at all. Right here it tells us, Jesus says, the Father loves you also. The Father loves you, just as the Son loves you. And He answers our prayers out of His love for us. Verse 28, Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And his disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came forth from God. The disciples say, Oh, now we get it. We, we, we understand now. And Jesus says, do you? I don't, I don't think you quite do. Jesus says in verse 31, not yet. He answers, do you now believe? 
Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And in just a few more chapters in the garden, as Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss, the remaining 11 disciples are scattered, and they flee, and they hide, and they run. Just as Jesus said what happened. And they leave Jesus alone. And yet Jesus says, when that happens, when you all flee and run from me, I'm not really alone because I still have the Father with me. And we too must remember, especially in times of suffering, remember that God is always with us. God is always with us, even when our friends or our family scatter and leave us. Even when our friends or our family betray us and stab us in the back. Jesus is always with us. Jesus ends this chapter with verse 33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus knew the coming suffering that the disciples would have to endure. He knew that all 11 remaining disciples would follow after Him, that after they were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that all 11 of them would give their lives teaching about Jesus, that all 11 of them would be put to death for their faith in Jesus, that only John, the disciple, would not be murdered, and that's only because God miraculously allowed him to be boiled in oil and survive. He's a southern boy, deep fried. And he's still there, serving Jesus. And he writes the book of Revelation. Jesus says, suffering is coming. But I've come to tell you that it's going to be okay. He tells them of what was to come, so that in him they would have peace. Your next fill in the blank We must remember that in a fallen world, tribulation is normal. In a fallen world, tribulation is normal. We live in a broken world. We live among sinners. And a sinner stares back at us in the mirror. That's going to bring tribulation. That's going to bring suffering. That's going to bring pain. Suffering's not fun. We don't like it, but it is normal. Jesus says, be of good cheer or take heart because He has overcome the world. Don't miss the fact that that's in the past tense. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. It's already done. We must remember that Jesus is victorious. He is victorious. He's already done the work. We look ahead to the promise of eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord. We look ahead to the new heaven and the new earth where we're going to stand with Him face to face in His presence. And it says God is going to dwell with us and we're going to dwell with Him. He's going to be our God and we're going to be His people. And it tells us in Revelation 21 verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Friend, from what are you suffering? 
What is it in your life that you are suffering from or suffering with? What tribulation are you experiencing? Jesus wants you to remember it's okay to not understand what's going on because Jesus knows and understands all. We need to remember that our sorrow is temporary. It's but for a moment. That the tomb is still empty. Jesus is still alive. We need to remember to abide in prayer and that He is always with us. We need to remember that trials and suffering are normal. That they don't affect God's love for us. That His love was proven true on the cross. And we need to remember that Jesus has already won. And your last fill in the blank, Jesus tells us all of this so that in Him we may have peace. Peace in the midst of the storm. Peace in the midst of suffering. Peace in the, peace in the midst of our trials. Jesus wants to give you the strength that you need to take one more step in whatever you're facing. He doesn't promise understanding. He doesn't promise to tell us where exactly we're headed. And sometimes it seems like we're just walking through a fog. And we say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't know what you're doing. But if we look to Him and abide in Him, then the Holy Spirit will give us the strength to say, but Lord, I don't know where I'm going, but I know who I'm following. God, give me strength. Give me the faith to put one more foot in front of the other and to live this life for You. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are a God who doesn't just say that You know what suffering is like. But Lord, You are a God who came to this earth and You suffered. You came to this earth and You endured pain and tribulation, backstabbing, lies, and deceit. Lord, You have suffered Yourself and so You know what it's like. Lord, thank You that because You came in Your righteousness and lived and died on the cross paying for our sin, that anyone who would believe in You, anyone who would cry out to Your name and say, Jesus, I need You. Lord, You will wipe away their sin. You will adopt them as Your son or daughter. And Lord, You will give them eternal life. Lord, I thank You that even after we are saved, after we are headed for heaven, Lord, though we still struggle with our sin, though we still struggle in this fallen world and these broken, decrepit bodies that don't last, Lord, You say we can have peace in You. Isn't that the key, Lord? The peace only comes when we are in You. Lord, if there's anybody here that's listening online or in person and they have not come to know You yet, they're still committing the unforgivable sin. God, I pray today would be that day where they would cry out to You and say, Lord, would You be my Lord and my Savior? I don't want to try to please You in my own strength. I can't. I fall short. but I'll do things your way. Lord, for anybody here that is in the midst of tribulation and they've not been feeling your peace, God, I pray 
that they would simply cry out to you. Say, Lord, would you help me to remember these truths? God, would you help me to abide in you? Would you help me to fix my eyes on your promises of the future? So that in you, Jesus, I can have peace. Thank you, Lord, that you are so powerful to give us peace in the midst of our storms. Thank you that you are so powerful that you could come and die and go back to life, resurrected, alive forevermore. Thank you that you are so powerful that you can fill each and every one of us with your Holy Spirit, giving us the strength that we need to live our lives for you. And Lord, you're the one that does the work. You've saved us. Lord, you make us more like you. Lord, you get all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. Thank you, Jesus. We give our praise to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? And let's close with another worship song. If you feel like you can't cope, you feel like you don't understand what's going on, you're freaking out, don't worry. You're just like the disciples. You fit right in. God loves you. He's with you. If we can pray for you, there'll be some people up front to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you next time. Have a good day.